This morning, as we come to God's Word to consider it, we will be slowing down a little bit and looking again at this morning at one verse, verse 14 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Earlier in the week, I had thought maybe I would complete our study of 2 Peter this morning, but again, as I looked at these verses, I thought it would be good for us to slow down and really meditate on verse 14, which in some measure sums up the pastoral concern of this little letter. But for the purpose of reading, I'm going to begin up in chapter 3, verse 1, and I will read through verse 14. I want to begin in chapter 3, verse 1, to remind you of the general context and so that we study verse 14 in light of that. So let me begin in chapter 3, verse 1. The Apostle Peter wrote, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last day mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pause to pray and ask God one more time. We just sang a song asking God by his spirit to bless uh, his word, but let's pause and ask him one more time. God, we know what it is to read your Bible or to hear your Bible read or taught. 
and for it to go in one ear and out the other, for it, the words to go in our eyes and somehow not make it to our, through our mind to our hearts. We pause once again to earnestly pray that your word would be of benefit to us, that you would, by your spirit, give us humility that we truly might be willing to change as need be, change our thinking, change our priorities, change our patterns, change our assumptions. Wherever there's anything in our lives that is in the least displeasing to our Lord and Savior coming, Jesus Christ, we pray that this morning you would do a strong work of giving to us a new desire and fervency to live lives pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a little letter written by the Apostle Peter shortly before he was going to die. He told us that back in chapter 1. He knew that his time was near, the time when he would be a martyr, would go to be with the Lord he loved. And he's writing out of deep pastoral concern. He's writing to people he loves. We'll note this more in a few moments, but notice how often in the reading We had this morning, he uses the word beloved. He loves, as a shepherd of the flock of Christ, the people in charge to to his care. And he's deeply concerned about a pattern, about a, a spreading trend that he sees that by the day and age we are living in, is fair to say, is the dominant expression of evangelical Christianity. What is that? It is professing Christ somehow as Lord, professing somehow to be associated with the God of the Bible and benefiting from the gospel, the good news of salvation, and yet somehow believing that maybe he's coming, maybe he isn't, That doesn't really matter, that somehow the gospel was given by God so that men and women can just have a, be relieved of a guilty conscience and live carefree in this life here and now. To varying extent, that is the gospel of the present day and age we live in, that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you can just be you. And that is not the biblical gospel. Oh, he loves you and he loves me. Again, that word beloved, we'll see in a moment, is a precious word. But God loves sinners to save them from the judgment to come and to change them by his spirit into the men and women made in his image that he made us to be in Christ. In other words, God saves sinners to make them holy. Holy not only with the imputed righteousness of Christ, 
not only declared righteous in the sight of God, praise God, that is the gospel, but by sanctification, little by little, day by day, by learning the Bible, learning what's pleasing to God, changing little by little, taking on thinking and behavior that God wants, turning from sin, thoughts and behavior that God does not want, and embracing a life that's pleasing to God. Second Peter is by and large a call to godliness or godly living, in particular in light of the reality of the soon coming return of Jesus Christ. And with that, the day of judgment that's coming upon this earth. These are the two dominant themes of Second Peter. How, how, how do we live godly lives? What does that look like? And especially in light of the fact of the soon coming return of Christ. In Peter's day, the trend was led by false teachers, faddish pastor teachers who maybe impressed uh, local churches with their likability, with their lifestyle that seemed so carefree. Maybe they seemed so happy. Maybe they seemed to have the key to living a happy life. And people start to listen to them and think, well, boy, I've been really working hard to confess sin, and I've been trying to be sensitive to what might displease God, and I felt guilty when I do something that's wrong. I guess I don't have to worry about that anymore. This guy, this teacher, seems to think that, uh, well, the grace of Christ means that I don't have to worry about sin. That's what these characters were like. In chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, Peter describes them, these false teachers, popular, faddish false gospel teachers. He describes them with very strong language. He says they're like unreasoning animals. They just go by the impulses of the flesh. They are born as creatures of instinct. They, verse 13, they, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. In some of the most strong language, he calls them stains and blemishes. Wow, um, not very nice. Not very affirming, is it? And it's, of course, in the context of a Jewish context of offering up sacrifices pleasing to God or, or of a priest showing up for duty at the temple. And, of course, the priests were to have clean robes, clean clothing. And if a priest showed up to worship God at the temple with clothes that he clearly stained with food or, or various unclean blemishes he of course would be turned away it would be thought to be unseemly that's what these false teachers are like they may seem impressive in the present day they may have large followings they have made lots of people talking about them but before God they're like a spot or a blemish a stain and Peter is writing to sincere believers he speaks of them that way in chapter 3, verse 1. I'm writing to you, stirring up by your sincere mind. He's sending out word to men and women who truly love Christ, who maybe have started to be swayed a little bit by the false teachers, 
but still have a love for Christ and are thinking maybe something's wrong. And he's stirring them up to not fall for the lies. He's calling us, the Spirit is, through Peter, to live godly lives. And that's not impossible. And and it's not for a certain super-duper special class of people. I, I fear that some of you think that here this morning. You're thinking, oh boy, if you knew me, I mean, you knew what I think, what I, you know, I, I mean, I may not be the worst person on earth, but I mean, godly, like a godly life, you're thinking maybe that, that's just not me. But, but believer, you're called to that, and, and that calling is not impossible. And it's not something really in the scheme of the kingdom of God that should be extraordinary, What's extraordinary is that God is holy, loved you, gave his son for you, gave you new life by his spirit, united you with his son so that by your faith in Christ, you are washed, you are cleansed, you are dressed in the robes of righteousness before God. That's astounding. And it's not extraordinary then that the way that God has dealt with you, the way that God has acted in you by his spirit, it's not extraordinary then that you would begin to live like a godly man or woman, because that's what God has created you to be, is someone that lives for him to please him in all things. We've come to this weird stage in Christianity where godliness is thought to be exceptional It is thought to be extraordinary, and it ought to be just the opposite. It ought to be just norm. The call here, of course, is not to absolute perfection. I mean, it is, but the Bible doesn't hold out that on this present time that any believer in Jesus Christ is going to live a Christian life without sinning at all. Peter knows that powerfully. The man who's writing this letter originally He loved the Lord Jesus Christ, but even when he was an apostle, he sinned against God in some very egregious ways. Peter knows what it is to be a Christian who's forgiven, and yet he's still calling us to godliness. He's calling us to resist the downward trend of Christian living, the standard, and he's calling us back to the standard once for all delivered in and through God's word. These false teachers are promoting lawless living, living without a thought to what God has revealed in his word. These false teachers are encouraging careless living. In other words, you live like you could care less, really, what's right or wrong. You could care less, really, what's pleasing to God. Instead, Peter's calling us to careful living, lawful living, godly living. This has been the theme of the letter from the beginning, from chapter 1, and now Peter's coming back to the subject and, and wrapping it up. He's calling us to remember. He's calling, he's writing to remind. So I'm going to use that as a key word this morning. First this morning, he's calling us in verse 14, believers, to remember who we are. First of all, to remember who we are. Chapter 3, verse 14, Peter wrote, Peter writes, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by 
Christ or by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Notice how Peter describes believers in verse 14. Under this first subject of remembering who we are, first of all, I want you to notice, so I have, I have three points with a few subpoints. If you're taking outlines, okay? The first point, remember who we are or remember who you are. And under that, remember that you are loved. Peter says, therefore, beloved. And our tendency is to just quickly move beyond that. Beloved. Oh, isn't that nice of Peter using that word beloved? I don't use it, but Peter did. You know, that's what he's, he must be a nice guy. Well, actually, I don't know if you look back at the Gospels that Peter was always a very nice guy. A little hard around the edges. But by this point, as an older man, he's been softened by the love of God. And do you notice how often he uses that word in chapter 3 alone? Look up at verse 1. This is now beloved. If you want to say beloved, you can pronounce it that way. That's fine. I use beloved because, I, I don't know, I, uh, I, I, you are loved. That's how we talk today, usually. Uh, you don't say, when someone loved you, you don't say they loved me. <laughs> she loved me. Uh, you say, she loved me. Uh, uh, but now she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of you are thinking. Anyways, uh, but uh, you, you don't talk in those terms. You, loved. I, so I use beloved. But if you want to use beloved, that works. Either way, I want you to notice the term. It's a precious term, the Greek agapatoi. Uh, beloved. He says this is now beloved, verse 1. He's talking to beloved men and women. Verse 8. Do not let this one escape fact, escape your notice, beloved. Verse 14, uh, beloved. Verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul. Paul is beloved. And then verse 17, one more time, youth therefore beloved. It's so important that we start there Here's Peter, who's an apostle, but functioning as a pastor. And make no mistake, the Holy Spirit, through Peter, is calling the men and women receiving this letter back then and right here this now. He's calling you to change. Mm-hmm. Yep. He, he's, he is coming to your life and my life and saying, you know what? There's some things you need to stop doing. and Some things you need to start doing. And what's our immediate response to that? Ooh. I don't know. I mean, there could be different responses. For some of us, it's, it's utterly crushing. I know I'm a miserable Christian. I can't do anything. I, I can hardly even get out of bed. I, I, why would I, you, just, you, you, you just ask, oh, I'm being called to do things, and you're absolutely crushed. And, and you, you go home, and, and you, someone asks you, what did you learn in church today? Yeah, I learned again how miserable and wretched a Christian I am. <laughs> that, that's not by the way, his goal. (laughs) That's not the goal, my goal either. Other responses are, you mean I got to change? I'm not sure about that. I mean, you know, I mean, that sounds a little legalistic to me, calling me to stop doing something or stop, start doing something. I mean, I mean, what does that pastor think he, he think he is? I mean, I'm, I'm too old now. I'm setting my, setting my ways. 
I have low, low blood sugar, whatever the case may be. I mean, if you do, I'm sorry. But I mean, these days, the number of reasons we have to excuse ourselves from the very clear, plain, reasonable dictates of Holy Scripture, the list of excuses is growing ad infinitum. And we need to say to both of those, to the person who's crushed, oh, it's, it's crushing me, I can't do anything, to the person who's a little resistant, how, do, how does God deal with us in those two? How does he start? My beloved child. My beloved child. And I want you to see that the Holy Spirit's doing it. I just showed you all those words, and that's, there's no word in Holy Scripture that's there by accident. The Holy Spirit doesn't use filler. Beloved. You got to start there because for the one who's crushed under the thought of their guilt and their failure, you need to hear this this morning. Yes, you do sin. The Bible says that. And, and you're going to continue to until you're in the presence of Christ. But your father loves you still. He loves you. No matter how many times you've stumbled and fallen and gotten up and fallen, again, you're beloved. Uh, some of the, those receiving this letter initially, maybe some of them had been duped and started to follow one of these false teachers, and, and they had really bought the whole, the whole line and started living carelessly. And, and then they hear this letter written by Peter, and they know Peter knew Jesus, and he's closer to Jesus than anyone, just about, except maybe the Apostle John. And they think, oh man, I, I really, I've really messed up. I, I've been, been sinning without really being careful now at all because I believe the false teaching and what do I do now beloved beloved child his grace true grace his love lifts up those crushed by the thought of our guilt and our sin and how weak we are and his love on the other end softens the hearts of those of us who are proud and set in our ways, wary of anyone coming suggesting change. When you have God Almighty through his word speaking to you, beloved, has a way of disarming you a little bit. God loves you. He loves his children. Remember who you are. You're beloved. You are other things, but firstly and foundationally, you are beloved of God. Peter certainly was speaking of his personal love for these individuals, some of whom he knew. But surely, when he uses this term, it's, it's in keeping with the rest of the New Testament usage, meaning that as believers in Jesus Christ, your identity in Christ is that you are loved of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are loved. That's not positive talk. That's not positive thinking. It is positive. It's the truth. You're loved. No matter how often you've failed, no matter how much you've fallen short, you're loved. Remember who you are. And then secondly, as you remember who you are, you are 
a person looking for these things, verse 14, since you look for these things. This is like what Peter said in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? Verse 12, looking for, hastening. This is our identity. In a time and age when among professing Christians, and again, I'm not talking about your particular convictions necessarily about future things. I'm just saying, by and large, there's virtually no interest in that, what the Bible has to say about it in the day and age we're in. Everything. If, if once upon a time there was, the, the scales were skewed maybe a century ago, and, and you heard nothing except preaching of end times and prophecy conferences and so forth, we certainly, at our present time, have gone to the extreme opposite, where we're not really interested in church history, and we're not really interested in what's going to happen in the future. We want to know only about me and my week and what's going to help me now. And it's good for us to have an interest in what the Bible teaches to help us with our week. And the Bible does help us with our week. But we are people called out of sin and darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved and glorious Son. And it, it wouldn't be a bad thing to go home today and when you pull in the driveway, look at every single thing you have and say out loud to yourself, well, all that's going to burn. Because it is. Doesn't mean it's not good. Doesn't mean it's not useful. Doesn't mean you should stop working on it. Husbands, do not use this as an excuse where there's a project around the house where your wife is asking you to do something. Oh, sorry, honey, it's going to burn. So I still don't think I really should spend any energy in that. <laughs> that. That is not what I'm getting at. It's just the reality that we look at what the Bible says about the unfolding of history, God's history that we are in. And this is what is going to go down. God is coming in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And when he comes and touches down upon this earth the second time, for believers, it will be a day of joy. And for this tired, wicked world full of ungodly men and women, it will be a day of woe. And Peter has emphasized that the heavens and the earth ultimately will be destroyed with intense heat as an expression of the purging fire and wrath of God. Therefore, we are by, by definition a people who are looking for these things. Christians are looking forward people by nature. We look back always. We are remembering people. We remember what God has done. We remember preeminently what Christ has done on the cross. But we are preeminently now a people who are looking for. Because the cross did not complete the full extent of God's redemptive plan. It was the preeminent key moment that secured God's redemptive plan. There are glorious, fearful, awesome things coming. And we will all be caught up in it whether we like it or not. And we who are believers, then, are men and women who are by nature, by spiritual nature in Christ, looking for the fulfillment of the promises of God. We are looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are 
looking for the judgment of God upon this earth. We are looking for the creation of a new heaven and earth. Again, verse 13, according to his promise, we are looking for. Do you see that? Christians are by definition of people who are constantly, as in a, in a sense, in their heart, have their eyes on the horizon. When is my Lord coming? When are these things going to be fulfilled? Not for the purpose of speculation, and certainly not to the neglect of living godly lives now, just the opposite. But we are, by definition, as Christians, looking for people. Secondly, this morning, as we remember who we are, Peter is calling us, the word of God is calling us to remember our responsibility. To remember our responsibility. Verse 14, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Firstly, as we remember our responsibility, we are to live diligently. This word comes up in Peter's letter several times. He has called us uh, to this in chapter 1, verse 5, applying all diligence. So here is a reminder, brothers and sisters in Christ, here this morning as we begin the fall, and as you have a home, as you have a family, as you have a job, as you have chores around the house, as you have ailments, all the things that we normal people have. Notice that what God wants from you is contrary to so much of the, the talk of the last few decades, he's actually not looking for you to live a radical life. Uh, there was a book written about that a few years ago, and I'm not saying it was all bad, but I don't think it's helpful to your average ordinary Christian to tell them, to call them to live a radical life for Jesus, because the Bible in the New Testament is not calling the average Christian to live a radical life for Jesus. The New Testament is calling you and I, as ordinary average Christians, to fulfill our duties, which are pretty mundane. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Work quietly, diligently. Go about your business. Provide for your household. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, as different as they are from you and with all the demands that that has. Worship God. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Love your neighbor. These are very simple things. And I want you to notice that we are to be diligent to be found by God in peace, this in, in a right relationship with God, in a right relationship with others. What God is calling us to is a certain steadfastness. That's another word that Peter uses, a diligence. What God is after is a certain cadence in your Christian living that doesn't look impressive to a watching world, but that is marked, however mundane it may seem, to many by simply living a life unto God. Getting up in the morning, thanking God for a night's rest, thanking God for breath, and asking God to help you to serve him that day. Leaving to God what belongs to God, he's sovereign, you're not. Taking to yourself the things that belong to you. God, you've made clear, you might say to yourself in your word, what is pleasing, I to love my spouse, serve others, help me to do that today. 
It's really not extraordinary, except maybe by way of contrast with the culture we live in. The culture we live in is, is marked by extreme, extreme. Like how many extreme? Like that's the word. Everything's got to be super extreme and so forth. The New Testament calls us to steady, diligent, godly living, looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we're doing that, just fulfilling our duties. This is why uh, several weeks ago now, I took one Sunday morning to try to give you a framework for godly living. And uh, you can listen to that if you'd like to. Because, I, again, I just think too many Christians have this idea that godly living is, is you've got to go off to some mountain and spend five years in some kind of secretive club learning the secret how to live, you know, like a super ninja Christian thing. No, no. Just... Look around at a few older godly people you know. Look at your New Testament, especially your Old Testament, of course, as well. And, and look at your responsibilities and order your life accordingly. Be prepared that others around you will think that's rather boring and rather plain. They won't understand you. You'll seem like an alien. But that's because you're not living for here and now. So live diligently, steadfastly. That's what we're after And that's one of the marks, by the way, of Christian maturity. Christian maturity is not merely what you know in your head as far as doctrine. Christian maturity, rather, is is what you know about God and the scriptures and doctrine increasingly being evident in the steadfast, diligent, day-to-day living of your life. You're a person who's less and less taken off by temptation or by things that distract you, and you're more and more living in light of the coming of your Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. They have extreme base. Um, So we are those who live diligently, and then secondly, under this second point, our responsibility, we live at peace with God. We are live at peace with God. Verse 14, be diligent to be found by him, by God, by Christ, in peace, spotless and blameless. That, that phrase, spotless and blameless, that's serious. That shocks us a little bit. We, we who are Christians who trust in the finished work of Christ, we're tempted to say, but wait a minute, I'm, I'm trusting in the spotless, blameless righteousness of Christ. Amen, I'm glad you are. But in with that spotless, blameless righteousness of Christ that has been credited to you, make no mistake, God is demanding, commanding you and I to then practice practical holiness. And in order to do that, we've got to learn what's pleasing to God. God still cares about lying. God still cares about telling the truth. God still cares about what we do with our mouths and what we do with our eyes and what we do with our hands and feet. Holiness still matters. Practical holiness, not just the imputed holiness, but living lives that are marked by righteous living. And I just need to say this strongly, God's not going to change on this. It doesn't matter how many pop teachers, preachers, there are, doesn't matter how big the churches are, doesn't matter how many books there are, doesn't matter how many people want to vote 
to do away with practical holiness in the name of the gospel. God will not change, for he is holy. He's called us to himself. We are to be holy as he is holy. He's not going to budge. He's not going to give. We need to deal with that and reckon with it. And for some of us, it means we need to be encouraged again that God will equip us with every grace. Some of us this morning were saying, oh man, but I'm such a piece of work. I don't know how God can do that with me. And, and the God who made the heavens and earth, dear one, he can handle you. Just give his word and his spirit a chance. And for those of us who are proud, uh, that's a bad place to be. This is what God wants, and we need to humble ourselves where we're wrong and get back to holy living. And our holy living, of course, doesn't increase our pride. It only decreases our pride because the more we try to live for God, the more we learn what's pleasing to him, the more we learn, wow, I really was a wretch before God saved me. And even after God saved me, I'm not all that I should be. So live at peace with God. Thirdly and finally this morning, remember your motive. We want to remember who we are. We want to remember our responsibility to live diligent, holy lives. This is the dominant theme of the New Testament, calling us to live lives pleasing to the Lord. I just need to pause again before we move on. I just need to underscore, that's not going to fit with what everybody else thinks how you should live. You are going to be mocked you are going to be thought strange. It is going to be out of step with everybody else. But that's what God's calling you to. Thirdly, remember your motive. And I want to close with two. I want to come back to remember you're loved by Christ. You're loved by God. It's your motive. What did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, do you love me? But the power of that question of Jesus to Peter when he appeared to Peter after Jesus was risen from the dead, it's recorded at the close of the Gospel of John, the power of Jesus' question was Peter was looking into the eyes of his Savior and he knew his Savior loved him. Peter is a loved man, a man who is profoundly aware of his shortcomings and of his sins and of his failures. Who else has betrayed his Lord and Savior so spectacularly like Peter? But he knows himself that his Lord loves him. And he does what he does because his Lord loves him. And the same is true for you and me. You are loved by Christ. You do what you do because you're loved. That's your motive. He loves you. And because of that, you want to please him. You don't want to grieve him. You do what you do because you want to. You know, we're really in in an extraordinary time right now um, in this generation where you're watching and you're going to see in in the next decade more, you're watching the collapse, and you're going to watch it, of external um, surface faddish Christianity. It's going to absolutely collapse because there's no reason for it anymore. The only reason there's going to be for true biblical churches. The only explanation is going to be that there are here and there groups of men and women redeemed by the blood of Christ who know they are loved by God and loved by Christ and do what they do because of that. 
it's, it's not just because, you know, you should go to church. I mean, that, that's already by the wayside. We're in the time when the only reason why you would possibly do what you do as a Christian is because you're loved by God and by Christ. Secondly and finally, this is a powerful motive. Not only are we loved, but we want to be found by Christ when he returns, living a life pleasing I mean, whether we die or whether the Lord comes, whether we meet him in the clouds, the reality is we all have an appointment. Paul talks more clearly about this. Every believer will be judged, not for our sins, because our sins, insofar as we have turned from our sin, put our faith in Christ, our sins have been dealt with on the cross. But we will, our lives, nonetheless, we will give an accounting. It will be as uh, one professor I used to have a godly man, he called it fruit inspection, fruit and spiritual fruit inspection. In other words, I redeemed you, God. God redeemed us, and there'll be a time when there'll be an accounting. And I'm sure some tears will be shed. There will be, of course, God's going to wipe away every tear, but, but this is a motive. I don't know how much longer I have. I mean, maybe I have 50 more years. Highly suspect. Um, or maybe the Lord's coming today. I don't know. But either way, I have an appointment that I cannot escape where I am going to stand before my risen Lord and Savior. And I want at that time, verse 14, I want to be found by him. How do I want to be found? I want to be found in peace, spotless and blameless. So for some here this morning, that means, I mean, this This text may be really messing with our lives right now because we're doing things we know we shouldn't be doing or we're just, we have some changes to make. Okay, God will help you with that. He loves you. He's given you his word and his spirit. And you, by God's grace, we can make the changes so that when we are found by Christ, we are found living in peace. Peace with God, not wrestling with God spotless and blameless. Let's remember these things. Let's pray. So God, we ask, help us to remember who we are. Help us to get back to remembering our basic Christian responsibilities. And we pray that the motive of love and of the return of our Lord would be powerful in the lives of each one here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.